All right, so um, Pastor Rayford and I are going to preach the sermon at the same time. And um, it's going to go awesome. And uh, so it's going to go fine because my church knows me as a man of few words. And. <laughs> And a slow speaker, so we're gonna have a lot of time. Um, so, uh, yeah, he's gonna he's gonna remind us of the sermon, and then I'll do the introduction. You being a man of few words—that was the joke, right? Yeah. So, so I don't have to tell the joke. You already told one. Okay. Because I too am a man of few words. Ah, right. Acts chapter 15. Thank you so much. Verses 36 through 41, I, I just want to remind you of what we've talked about. We read this scripture earlier, uh, but this is uh, the text that we will be discussing today. It says, sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let us go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. But Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement. Everybody say disagreement. Disagreement. That they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus but Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord. He went through Syria and Sicilia, strengthening the churches. Um, the, uh, we got together to try to figure out what to preach on together, which is hard for pastors to do. Um, and we were talking about the books we were reading, and one of the books that neither of us actually read, but we thought would be a great idea for a sermon, is, um, is a book that actually was a Pulitzer Prize winner over the last couple of years here called a Team of Rivals, The Political Genius of Abraham Lincoln. Some of you may have heard of it. There are pictures of our president reading it on the internet, for example. And um, the basic thrust of the book, and the, all the reviews cover this, is that um, one of the political geniuses of Abraham Lincoln was that he didn't just get a bunch of clones or interchangeables on his cabinet. He went out and actually found people that had very principled and very serious disagreements with each other, and he brought them onto his cabinet, and he just made them fight with each other. And the idea would be that if you did that, you would not be subject to the kind of narrow-mindedness and, and lack of diversity of understanding that comes from just having everybody just like you in your circle who just tells you back what you already believe. And so you end up getting this hollowed-out understanding of the world rather than a more, full, a more full one. And so Lincoln did that intentionally. And as, as we talked about um, what we want to talk about, one of the things we recognized is that— um, God has intentionally given differences to people in the church that in their natural course of things create rivalries. So that the church is a team of rivals, not because we're supposed to be rivals with each other, but because we have differences intentionally given to us by God that in the due course of nature will create rivalry. And so we've got to recognize that this is a very natural course of things because, listen, there's only three kinds of teams, okay? There's, there are teams of rivals with no cooperation, 
which accomplish nothing. They're actually, it's worse than trying anything at all, right? You've got teams of people who are interchangeable. Now, teams of people who are all the same and interchangeable actually can't accomplish things. So long as the task is very narrow and very specific, a non-diverse team is good. For example, if you want to dig a ditch that's three feet wide, four feet deep, and six feet long, you don't want a diverse team. You want four big, strong men with some strong backs and broad shovels. That's what you want. And so, a totally undiverse team is what you want, but that's a very simple, very narrow task. The minute you get a task that's complex and big, you need a diverse team. So you have to have a team of people with difference causing, rivalry causing differences on a team together that's actually cooperating. If you've got a task that's big and complicated, and let's just, let's just face it, let's just face it, life is not simple and narrow. Life is diverse and full of problems, and without, and so you need a diverse team to get through life. Now think about this. God has already created a diverse rivalry team for life, right, called a marriage. (laughs) Right? I mean, I mean, normally you think of God as being a divine person in his right mind, and who in their right mind would think that a man and a woman coming together would create some kind of non-rivalry sort of harmony. (laughs) Right? I mean, God in the home has created. Why? Because life is the sort of thing that is complicated and big. And you need that kind of team. But listen, same thing's true of the gospel, isn't it? It's global. It's diverse. We're to reach all peoples. It's urgent. It is resisted by our personalities, oftentimes our culture, and definitely by devils. I mean, this is a difficult, big, complex test. And so it makes perfect sense that what we need in all teams that accomplish diverse things, we're going to need people with real differences. Those real differences are going to cause rivalries. And so we have got to figure out how to be a team of rivals because a rival, they're clapping. Yeah. See, stop the clock. We talk while we're preaching, so, it's like, so that you hear these amens It's coming. interactive. That's interactive. Usually so. the only interaction I get is. <laughs> Silence is a bad thing. Yeah. <laughs> okay, let me say one last thing before Pastor Ruffin goes through. Um, Therefore, you got to define what a rival is. A rival is not necessarily an enemy. A rival is a rival. A rival is someone who sees the world different than you, sees things different from you, has a different perspective than you. They don't have to be your enemy. You can make them your enemy. And some rivals, some rivals sadly will be our enemy because their vision of the world is sufficiently different that you have to part company and you have to be civil, but there will be a split. But that is not true necessarily. And we have to split those up in our head and say, can this, is this rival meant to be my teammate. Okay? And so, we believe that God has intentionally assembled a team of rivals. It's your turn now, and my thing isn't working, so you better just go All right. for it. So, there's a scripture that we, we've talked about in 1 Corinthians chapter number um, 1, verse 10, where Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of the Lord Jesus, that all of you agree with one another so that there may be no divisions among you and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. It was Adam Clark who said of that scripture uh, that the members of the church of God should labor to be of the same mind and speak the same thing in order to prevent divisions. 
Uh, and, and he said, and I quote, men should bear with each other and not be so ready to imagine that none have the truth of God but they and their party. If we don't, the unfortunate result uh, of this kind of division, of, of a division that rivalry creates, is that it often prevents divinely intended alliances uh, that are driven by God's purposes. So sometimes God intends for people to work together, but because of differences, the people don't know it. A great example of this is the team of Paul and Barnabas. Uh, these two men were one, had one of the most notorious uh, conflicts in the New Testament. And I love the Bible because it, it lets us see this. But before they parted ways, everybody say before. Before. Before they parted ways, they were a dynamic duo. Uh, there are three points I want to bring out. First of all, how they met. The Bible tells us in Acts chapter 4, verses 36 and 37, that Barnabas was one of the initial followers of Christ. So Barnabas was saved before Paul. And he was one of the founding members of the church. He was a Jew with a Levitical heritage. Barnabas was a benevolent man. He was a kind-hearted man. The Bible describes him as being a good man, full of the Holy Ghost and faith. So when Paul received uh, the baptism of the Holy Ghost and was converted, uh, uh, Paul was, people didn't trust Paul. Uh, Paul, was, uh, Paul was a rogue. Paul was a thug. Paul was somebody you did not want to see coming your way, especially if you were a Christian. But once Paul's life was changed by Christ, uh, he turned over a new leaf, but nobody believed him. It was Barnabas who went to the apostles, his peers, and said to them, uh, Paul's okay. We need to accept him. I believe his conversion. That's important because it's possible without Barnabas that Paul would have never become the apostle we know today. Uh, Barnabas took a risk and, 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 and vouching for Paul. Nobody wanted to take, but Barnabas was willing to do that. Together, everybody say together. Together. Together, Paul and Barnabas preached the gospel of Jesus Christ uh, all over the place, in places like Cilicia and Salamis and Paphos and uh, uh, places like Lystra and Derby and Italia. All of this on foot, all of this traveling by boat over a two-year period. This is what's known as the first missionary journey. It's noteworthy, and I think we should take note of it, that at the beginning of chapter 15, we see Paul and Barnabas working together. Uh, there was a potentially divisive uh, debate going on that would have uh, severely hindered the growth of the church. Uh, and so Paul and Barnabas stood together, uh, if you will, in front of the Supreme Court and they argued on behalf of the Gentiles uh, that this new thought would not be imposed on the new church. The Bible says it was not a small uh, dissension, and, or, nor was it a small disagreement. This was a big deal. They were so united that the apostles would later refer to them as our beloved men that have hazarded their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we see this great unity in the beginning of chapter 15. That unity prevailed uh, and the cause that they were fighting for was won. 
But by the end of chapter 15, we see things differently. Now we see Paul and Barnabas having won a great victory, uh, having a great now uh, disagreement. All that they had done together, all that they had gone through together was now being jeopardized because of a disagreement. And so uh, the point that I have to make here is that God uses odd teams of people. He uses people that ordinarily would never come together and only God knows what he has in mind when he puts them together. He uses this odd team of individuals to accomplish things that may not happen without them. Uh, God still does that today. He still uses odd teams. You, you referenced a marriage. Uh, a marriage, sometimes when you look at people, you see, uh, you say, well, we share some things in common, but we don't share all things in common. Uh, God puts friends together. Sometimes our best friends are not the ones that, that we look alike. Sometimes our best friends uh, are people that we don't share much, but there's something about them that, that, lend, that binds our hearts together. And I think we have to be careful not to allow our differences uh, to distract us from what God had in mind when he called us together. God reserves the right to pick the players for his team. Uh, God is not like uh, uh, the, the, the player, the offensive player, who, who goes out and drafts the people that he wants on his team. Uh, God is drafting an entire team, and he reserves the right to do that. Most, most of us, when we select teammates, we select people that look like us. Uh, to, we select people that we totally agree with. Uh, we select people that we won't disagree with, but that's not what God has in mind. Uh, in, in many times, God selects people that we would not select. And, and so uh, it, it, when he does that, he does not assemble a team of drones, nor does he cause all of our differences of opinions and our personalities or our pet peeves to diminish. Uh, in many instances, our differences are our strengths. Everybody say that out loud. Our differences, differences are, are our, our strengths. strengths. It's like a football team. If you have a football team uh, that has a great offensive uh, scheme, but no defensive scheme, uh, that team may win some good games. Uh, but ultimately, the fact that they don't have a diverse team is going to cost New England. Them. They get blown out. <laughs> they get blown out. Uh, because they only put all, they put all of their eggs, as we say, in one basket. So the churches, I believe, should not be filled uh, with people that look alike and talk alike and have the same experiences. Uh, the church should be diverse. I say that because God saved us, saves us from a diverse background. And we have to learn that he did, he did not promise to save rich men. He did not promise to save poor men. But the Bible says in St. John, he says that if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. And that's what God is doing. Is it possible that the church of today is sending away people that God intended to be on our team? This is, the, is this the dialogue point? I think it's all dialogue. <laughs> yeah, I think um, 
You know, Lex and I have talked about it because we moved to the city a year and a half ago. And one of the things that we've, you know, you look for when you do that is, is, a, is a good friend, or, you know, close friends. And one of the things we talked about as a criteria is somebody that you, when you get together with, it just clicks. Mm-hmm. Um, which is a really great thing to have, a friend that you just, they just get it. You don't even have to explain the whole thing, but they just get it. The, the problem is, is that, that that'll narrow down. You're going to end up with somebody very similar to you. And you will not have, most of those friendships do not have the enriching possibilities that you have to fight through to get to. And I think that's one of the reasons, I think you've got to have slots in your life where you say, okay, just like, just like evangelistically, you can't have all Christian slots. You've got to say, okay, I've got to have a couple slots in my life where I'm going to make friends with and get to know non-Christians. You've got to do that. Otherwise, nice Christian folk who parent just like you will just take up all the slots, you know? And I think you have to do that in your friendships too. You've got to say, you've got to have your friendships. These are the people who are just like me, and I've got to intentionally have a couple of friendships. These are people that don't, aren't just like me, but they're good for me, mm-hmm. you know? And you know, what I found is that sometimes the best friends are not the ones that are just like me. And, and, and I, don't dis- I don't describe a best friend as someone that's there when everything is going well. I, I, I'm talking about a best friend is there when, when things are tough, uh, when, when, you, when you need somebody to just hand you the tissue because you've been crying all night. Uh, th- those sometimes are not the ones that you expect. Those many times are your, your rivals. You know, we have some friends that, uh, at least I do, I have some friends that they don't want me to call them all the time. Just call me when you need me. Right. If you don't need me, don't bother me. Right. But when I need them and I call them, they will drop whatever they're doing to come and help me. Do you have a friend like that? And, and, and you have sometimes those are friends that you can't explain. You know, when people, when people see you, they're like, well, why, wh- why is that your friend? I, I can't really explain because we don't have a lot in common, but I know when I need them, they're there. Oh, yeah. I have a couple friends I can't spend more than two days with, but I love them, you know? But I'm just glad my wife doesn't feel that way about me. (laughs) I'm going to leave that alone. (laughs) Because there are times that my wife probably does feel that way about me. (laughs) Now I have another place to go. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Okay, so... If, it's, if that's true, what, what Pastor uh, Rayford was talking about, um, then if God intentionally assembles a team of rivals, then we have got to think about the, the question, um, how do you create a sufficient cooperation among the rivals so that you've actually got a team, right? That's important. And so um, we can't have two pastors both, both preaching three-point sermons, so I'm just going to do two points, okay? And... Um, I want, to say, I want to say there's two things we've got to really focus on. The first is a deeper grasp of the gospel. And the second is a moral commitment to the discipline of civility. Okay? So let's look at those for a second. A deep grasp of the gospel. Um, now, for those of you who might be new to church, you read the newspaper, you thought, let's go see what, what's going to happen. Like, like John the Baptist said, something, uh, go look out some show in the desert. Um, we mean by the gospel, we mean the good news. Gospel means good news. We mean particularly the good news about Jesus. That is, that because of Jesus' birth, life, death, and resurrection, that those who put their trust and faith in him can um, be forgiven by God, can be united by God, and can enjoy God forever. And there's a million things that work out from that, okay? And in the book of 1 Corinthians that um, Pastor Rafe recorded before and that our church is going to be studying for the, just about the rest of the year, um, 
that is a church in which there's all kinds of rivalry. There's no church in the New Testament that has more rivalry going on in 1 Corinthians. And, and what they seem to believe is this, the, the reason why their rival is so thick-headed is because they understand the gospel better than their rival. And let, why don't we, we'll just call this the, the, the rivalry paradox. Okay, the rivalry paradox is, I think my rival is my rival because I understand the gospel better than them. When in fact, they're your rival because we both understand the gospel pretty shallow. That's the real reason. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And now the, the question is, why is the gospel paradox so spread out throughout the church? And here's why. Because it's so natural. It's so natural. And here's why. Because we tend to think that the thing in the gospel that most touched our heart is the heart of the gospel. And that's not necessarily the case. The thing that touched you the most deeply in the gospel is not necessarily the deepest truth of the gospel. Those aren't necessarily the same thing. And so there's a difference between your heart and the heart of the gospel. Those are different. And um, think about it this way. Um, See if you can put up that slide with the six things on it. If you think about the six most basic implications of the good news about Jesus for all of us, here, here are just some. Revelation. The gospel tells us who we are. It tells us who God is. Right? It takes away that confusion and that lack of clarity. Justification. In Jesus, you are accepted and you are free of all accusation. Right. Right? Sanctification. That is, you're free from sin. You don't have to be a slave. You don't have to keep doing it. You can be free from sin. That's part of the gospel. Fourth, this God comes to live in you. The promise of the indwelling spirit. You you will never be really alone again. Fifth is authority and spiritual conflict. You don't have to be weak and you don't have to be helpless in any kind of attack into your life. You have authority. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and earth was given to me. And some of it I'm given to you. One of it is go now and preach the gospel. You have that authority, right? And throughout the New Testament, a lot of other authorities are given to us. We have that, right? And then sixth, purpose and promise, right? We have a mission and we also have a promise. And all that's in the gospel. Now, if we preached a, like a six-week series on this, and each week we did one, and— Which we are not going to do. Which we are not going to do. (laughs) Um, You want to start a YouTube channel? I'm just kidding. Um, That's a good idea. If we did that, we would not all connect equally with each of those sermons, would we? You see what I'm saying? You see, if you, if you are the kind of person who have been, who get, you get, you've just been accused of stuff. Everybody's been pushing you down your whole life. You just feel accused and broken and attacked. And, and I, we get up there, we preach on justification that in Christ, you are accepted. And those for whom God is accepted, who can stand against? If God is for you, Romans 8 says, who can be against you? And if that's, listen, if that's been your life and you hear that, you're like, yes! Oh my gosh, that is the gospel. And you, that could be the whole gospel. There's nothing more than that because it touches you so deeply. Here's the problem. That's not the whole gospel, okay? I, right. I am the second child of an Italian mother. I've been worshipped since the day I was born, okay? <laughs> I don't have an acceptance problem. <laughs> and so I'll sit there in that sermon. I'll be like, yeah, that's biblical. That's, that's good. I bet some people are touched by that, right? But you see, you see if, you, if you, it wasn't rejection for you, for, but for you, it was abandonment. If people just don't stick in your life, then, then it might be actually the indwelling spirit that's the big promise for you. That really hits you. Now, here's the problem with that. Here's the problem. That's great. That's what God, God wants that to touch you the most deeply because that's where your pain is. It's, it's great. It's like, if it's like pains are the deepest valleys and God just pours in the water and fills them all up. 
And the deepest one's going to have the most water in it, right? I mean, that's, God wants to fill in that place. He wants to minister in that place. It's the worst for you, right? But listen, don't mistake that. What touches your heart to be the heart of the gospel. The gospel is all of this stuff. It's all of the promise. The gospel is Jesus. And Jesus is kind of broad on this thing. Mm-hmm. And different people, are, now here's the, here, now go with this. That it's not just in how the gospel comes into you. It's also about how the gospel comes out of you. Because the gospel comes into your personality, but guess what? It also comes out through your personality. We, right. Sometimes in preaching school, we refer to preaching as the scriptures respoken, mediated through the personality of the preacher. You can't get the personality preacher out of it. You know, you can try to be real boring, but it's, you know, it's just boring. You still got the personality preacher. So what, what you got to realize is that everything we do is, out, is the gospel refracted through our personality coming out. It's not just the pure gospel. So go to that next slide if, if you could. So you see, okay, that's good. Start. So you see, if the gospel comes in and it's the presence, like you're, but you're abandoned. And so that Jesus will be with you, that kills you. You're like, oh, that's awesome. Well, guess what you're going to tell everybody the gospel is? God will be with you. 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 And, and there's all this other stuff about the gospel you might totally forget about because it didn't hit you. And see, what that creates is you think, see, you're going to think you understand the gospel so deeply because your pain there was so deep and it means so much to you. It's so deeply in you there that you think you understand the gospel deeply and you don't. And so somebody else who's one of these other things really mattered to them. And they live that out. It reflects through their personality and they do something and you go, you don't even get the gospel. You see the issue? It's, and, and listen, how natural is that? That is so natural. And it creates terrible rivalry. Go to that next slide if you would. For example, if you, at most churches have at least five factions in them, right? You've got your worship and prayer people. These are the people that we, we could still be singing freedom now and they would be into it. Right? And then you've got your, your like action social justice people like, let's get out there and like, you know, Jesus hates misery, poverty, and injustice. Let's go out and fight misery, poverty, right? And, or you've got your evangelism people, right? Like, why, why are we here? We've already heard. Let's go, right? You've got your discipleship people. Listen, you can lead as many people in faith as you want. You can sing as long as you want. If people don't get trained, their life is not going to change. And they come and they can sing for 15 hours on Sunday morning, and they're going to go out there and live the same broken lives they did before. And then you've got your integration people who are like, listen, if we don't figure out where the gospel transects culture that we actually live in, we are not going to answer the questions people are asking, either in discipleship or in evangelism. Our worship song lyrics won't be written to the places people really live. We're not going to get anywhere. Now, now here's a problem. Um, if your church has those five groups in it fighting with each other, for time on the stage, for staffing, for money, for bulletin space and all that stuff. Here's the bad news. That means your church is decently healthy. Because what happens to, what do most people do? They go make their own church. So over here, you've got your worship and prayer church, and you've got your evangelism church, and you've got your discipleship church, and you've got your, you know, your, we'll put the integration people with the discipleship people, and you've got your, your social justice people, and the social justice people, they've got great ideas, but they don't have any horses to get it done, because not enough people have gotten saved and discipled to make sacrifices necessary to go out and cure misery and injustice and poverty. And then over here, you've got your discipleship people, they're having wonderful Bible studies, but there's no new Christians entering them, because there's no evangelism people. The evangelism, the evangelism people, the only training there is that they're church is the four spiritual laws. And you, you know what I'm saying? This is, a, this is an issue. And when, when churches specialize like that, it's not healthy. 
I mean, if your church has these five groups fighting, well, that's, that's actually not that bad. But it would be even better if we were a team and see, of rivals. I think that's what's happening. I, I think that's why God inspired us to come together is because that's what we see happening not within just a local church, but within the body of Christ. Right. We, 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 are, we are separated by our differences. And, and then because there are differences, we feel this obligation to explain away the differences. Well, there must be something wrong with people that sit in that section because this is clearly the more anointed section over here. <laughs> I just created a rivalry. I didn't. didn't. Thanks. (laughs) But 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 that's that's what happens. And then and then everybody develops this personality, and and the personality is not one that was created by uh, the picture that your daughter drew that you had up there. Right. Uh, It's 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 it's. Or did you draw that? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It, it's, it's not the kind, it's not a reflection of the heart of the gospel. It's a reflection of our human hearts. Right. And what God wants us to reflect is his heart. And, and again, when we are not uh, uh, reflecting his heart, those divisions that you talk about mm-hmm. divide the body and, and the person that is hurt is the one that's not saved because the new person really needs all of those things in order to be healthy. But if we isolate ourselves, uh, then, then there is no health. You and I have some differences. Uh I I can't wear gym shoes on a Sunday morning. I just can't do it. I can't do it. Uh, uh, (laughs) I can't do it. This this is, you may not know this, but this is me dressed up and him dressed down. Right, right. That's true. That's true. Uh, Again, again, we have our differences. But from the moment we met, we have some similarities. We both have a commitment to the holiness of God. We both have a commitment to the innate problem of sin. Uh, We both have a commitment to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We both have a commitment to the doctrines of salvation. We both have a commitment to the life-changing, mind-altering, heart-fixing spirit of God. And we both have a commitment to the necessity of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. So why should we be on different teams when we have so much in common, like Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas were able to reach so many souls, countless of thousands of souls. They were able to turn cities upside down because they shared core doctrinal values. And and that commonality is what made them a dynamic duo. And in this room, we have people that share common values, but don't realize it and, and have been convinced and I say convinced by the devil that we're on different teams when we're on the same team. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I think, therefore, it's important to recognize that our, actually our, our Christian differences in many, many cases are actually produced by the same gospel. Mm-hmm. 
And so it becomes an inability for us to understand the gospel deep enough for me to be able to see, for example, your, your Christian faith coming through you. There's two things I have to do. I have to understand the gospel deep enough to be able to see the expression coming from you as an expression of the gospel. And I have to love you enough to figure out what kind of thing you are that it's reflect, reflecting through that way. Mm-hmm. And so there's an there's a interpersonal love that has to happen, which is hard work. Mm-hmm. And there's a deep understanding of the gospel that has to happen, which is also hard work. And I think that we just get stuck where we just go, it's easier to be pe- with people like us. There's a love failure and it's easier to not go deeper in the gospel because there's a part of it we really like and that's enough for us right now. And it just, it ends up with just a shallow, a very shallow understand the gospel. It just produces, but really those differences really are coming from a similarity. The reason you are so different than me is because we are both so passionate about building the church as ministers. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and, you, mm-hmm. and every, almost every choice you make mm-hmm. that's different from almost every choice I make about how I lead this church and, and certain like the, the things of how we do it and, right. um, comes from the exact same passion. Right. And so that's a, that's a very, a very interesting but I think when we interact, though, I think that we pull each other in a little bit off of our emphases. Yeah, and so you can, it helps us figure out where our emphases are, are right for our specific slice of what we're attacking. Right. And what is just, we're just getting too narrowed in our own. Because, because what's more important than how we do is what we do. We're doing the same thing. We're doing it different ways. And, and, and to your point about having this, uh, this, this commitment to doing it my way only, because my way works, as does your way. And when you think about Paul and Barnabas, they continue to preach the gospel. Right. Uh, Barnabas didn't go off and, and start something else. Uh, he continued to preach the gospel. Right. Paul went on to do the same thing. Uh, they, they didn't do it together, but because they were doing it, they were doing it together. And, and sometimes we find ourselves challenged in life. So, so the point is, you know, where do we go? Uh, where do we go from here? What's the purpose of this message? And I don't think that there is going to be some moment uh, uh, that, that this message just, uh, there's an aha moment. The aha moment may not occur for two months. It may not occur for six months. It may occur on your job when you find yourself having to work with someone that you don't know, that you don't like. When somebody moves into the house next door to you or you hear something about a family. Because you know what? Every, there, are, there are different people in this room, but we're all facing some of the same challenges. Yeah. You may be in the 1%, but if you've got a teenager, hello somebody. We're all facing similar challenges. And when we, when we learned that and we began to appreciate our differences and appreciate what we are doing together, when we uh, begin to build those alliances, people that you never got along with, uh, you find yourself, uh, you know, I may be a, a, a Dallas Cowboy fan. But tonight, I'll be a Packer fan. Know your audience, right? Yeah, right. But, but, but I think it's important for us to learn how to come together. Yeah. And, and not allow our differences to keep us apart. Because the person that you hurt the most is yourself. Because you're missing something. 
if, 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 if I had allowed our differences when you called with this idea, look at what I would have missed. Look at what you would look at all of those that said, well, is this necessary? Why are we doing this? And we really didn't, you know, know until like this morning, you know. Um, but, but look at what would have been missed. But look at what happens when this is your cue to come over here. <laughs> look at what happens when we come together. And imagine if this is multiplied by however many people there are in this room. If, if we come together. Because guess what? You have something in common with everybody in this room. You have something. You share something. Uh, and, and is it time to close? Can I close? It's 45. Is it's when we 45. Close. Exactly. I wanted to say one more thing, though. Oh, do you? <laughs> Stop the clock. Oh, you want me to do now? Yes, please. Uh, one of the things that is apparent in the story of Paul and Barnabas is that even though they divided over a sharp disagreement, the, you notice that when they split, the church benefited and grew, which shows us that though their argument may have been extremely strong, these were extremely principled men in how they argued and what they decided to do so that when it was time for them to go, okay, listen, we're just going to go different ways. They went different ways as friends and as colleagues and as people who loved each other and continued to correspond and trade leaders with their different ministry groups and all of that, even, even recognizing they disagreed on, essentially they disagreed on how you empower young leadership. That was a disagreement. Right. Do you stick with a guy who screwed up or do you just go find new guys and train them? And that's what they, dis and they disagreed. And that's all there is to it. And both of them succeeded. Because in Colossians, who does Paul ask for at the very end? John Mark. John Mark. But if you read Acts 20, in the middle of Paul's ministry, there's 20 or 30 names of these leaders he's found and he's raised up and he's sent places. Paul's model worked. Barnabas's model worked. They didn't do it together, but they, they parted with civility and they didn't shoot arrows at each other. And sometimes that happens. I mean, one of the things we talked about when we got together was, um, you know, my frustration and the only thing I'm good at reaching are suburban white people. And, you know, I was like, how about you? You got a multicultural church? He's like, not really. And I was like, you know, what are we going to do about that? I mean, can we do something or what? Or do we just like become friends and like, oh, how do we? And that's, I mean, that's something I think everybody struggles with. I mean, you hear that quote, like Sunday morning is the most segregated hour in America and blah, 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 which, you know, it's really going to restaurants, I think. But, um, but it, you know, it's... I think everybody has this frustration with like, we're Christians, we ought to be the most united people. But at the same time, when we think about our mission, about who we're trying to reach and how do we get at them and what kind of services will they respond to, we realize there's actually significant differences. And so how do we, how do we create a different attack in terms of how we do church, but yet have a real unity? And for us, it's been like, you know, he faxed over a quote from a builder to see if my buddy knew a guy that could do it better and like we bounced sermon ideas. Like, so it's, it's the, the real solution is very difficult to figure out exactly what to do. It's understanding the differences, um, having a clear understanding uh, and, and not challenging them, but understanding them to embrace them, you know, and, and learning from one another because in gaining an understanding of the difference, you know, uh, you, you walk away with some things, uh, uh, you know, not to say, 
You know, there are some phrases that you do not, you should not use uh, because it is antagonistic uh, towards a group of people. And, and, and by the same token, if you don't have that relationship with someone that can tell you, never say this, uh, then, then you'll say it thinking, you'll say it innocently and you'll offend someone, uh, not, not on purpose. I, I'll give right. you. Absolutely. And in a society with as much information, everybody's ignorant. Everybody is ignorant. I mean, I don't know hardly anything about almost everything. And so, like, I mean, I mean, to think other people ought to know all your cultural sensitivities and everything that bothers you, I mean, that's just, it's not true. But if you've, but if you've got a friend who will be like, yeah, that, 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 doesn't, that doesn't go over so well. You thought that was funny? It wasn't funny for me. You know, you need that. But that gets back to this whole idea of civility, that the manner is sometimes more important than even the mission in the sense that mm-hmm. you have got to just say, I will not act that way. Mm-hmm. And it's totally different than our politician friends who, who, uh, who they'll, they'll be civil if it's playing in the polls. And the right. minute you're not making it in the polls, they turn on the attack ads. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like when you're on the phone trying to get your way in like a thing with a person. And when you don't get what you want, then you start yelling, right? That, civility was just a tactic. Right? No, civility has to be a discipline, an ethic, a theology. And if Barnabas and Paul didn't have that, who knows what would happen? And if we don't have that with each other, we'll never get the chance to learn enough about each other because of the incivility that will push us away from each other. Because incivility really, at the end of the day, is gossip. And, and you know, when, when you think about, uh, that's the marker of being a Christian. Jesus said, this is how you'll know, this is how the world will know that you're my disciples by the love that you have one for another. Not by the hate that you have, not by uh, the bitterness that you have, but by the love that you have one for another. That's the marker. Not even your doctrinal accuracy. If your doctrinal accuracy doesn't produce better love and Mm -hmm. hope and faith, then it's really not that helpful. If you don't have love, then then your doctrinal accuracy is inaccurate. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. And I, and I am Mr. Doctrinal Accuracy, but if it doesn't, it's, gotta, it's kind of like, you know, if you're farming and you're like, I'm a really good farmer, but you're not producing anything to eat, you know, you, you, at some point you got to be like, dude, I think you need to go work somewhere else. You know? All right, bring us home. Oh. <laughs> so teamwork makes the dream work. Everybody say that out loud. Teamwork makes the dream work. work. And and the dream that will work is your dream. I'm not talking about someone else's dream. I'm talking about your dream. The dream that you have for yourself. The dream that you have for your children. The dream that you have for your education. It depends, it's success hinges on a team, and the team must be a team of rivals. I'm going to ask everybody to do, do me a favor. Stand on your feet. And at our church this year, uh, we've been uh, speaking blessings into one another's lives from Psalm chapter 20, uh, if we can get that slide up. And what I want you to do is to find someone that you don't know. Find someone that you don't know and and you see it on the screen and I want you to speak with authority this 
passage of Scripture into their lives. Are y'all ready? Wait, wait, hold on. Wait a minute. We just spent 47 minutes talking about being teams, and I said, are you ready? And nobody says I'm ready. We're ready. Are you ready? Okay, you see it on the screen. I'm going to speak these words into your life, and you're going to speak them into my life. Okay. In times of trouble, may may the the Lord Lord answer your your cry. May May the the name name of the Lord Lord, God of Jacob keep you safe from all harm. May he send you help from his sanctuary and strengthen you from Jerusalem. May he remember all your gifts and look favorably on all burnt offerings. May he grant your heart's desires and may all your plans succeed. May we shout for joy when we hear of your victory and raise a victory banner in the name of our God. May the Lord answer all your prayers. If you believe it, put your hands together and just give God.